Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, I'm really excited about our guest that we have on the podcast today. Yeah, me too. She has a very compelling story. She's very thoughtful. She's taken a lot of time to process and think through. And her answers are not shoot from the hip kind of answers. Um, This is someone that we've enjoyed getting to know because of all that she has added to not only our lives, but our community, the life of our community. And so we're going to bring her in in just a second. But first, let's do a listener question. Ready for this, Sherry? Yep. And if you, listener, if you would like to submit a listener question, just send it to me, matt at soberandunashamed.com. Here we go. This question is about blaming the alcohol, something we talk a lot about. And I, I, I love this. There's a little bit of pushback in this question. I think it's, I think it's great. Blame isn't just a mechanism to point a finger. It is actually also a component of reconciliation and forgiveness. When someone accepts blame and apologizes, it changes their way and changes their ways and makes up for whatever wrong they committed. The person they wronged can heal. How can I get that from alcohol? How can alcohol atone for the choices my husband made that damaged our marriage, possibly irreparably? How can alcohol give me assurances? How can alcohol make up for the lost time and suffering? How can alcohol have accountability? How can alcohol initiate healing? Mm. So we talk a lot. It it wasn't an original concept. Um, We got it from our friends at We Are Recovery, Anna and Mitchell, this concept of blaming the alcohol, pretending like there's a third person in the relationship. And this person saying, yeah, that's great. But how does that relate to forgiveness? Well, I think she brings up a good point um, about how blame, um, you know, is a is a way to accept responsibility for that. And we've often said, you know, like blame the alcohol, you know, but also like do your part of the responsibility. So but then in the forgiveness piece, how can alcohol, you know, have make me feel, you know, that I, I can forgive and, um, accountability and all that. That's where I feel like I'm not answering this very well. Um, (laughs) you're fine. I just feel like if you are assigning blame to the alcohol, then you can say, okay, after a certain amount of time, I can start to trust my partner that in their sobriety, they're not going to repeat some of these actions because it was the alcohol creating it. So I feel like it's not just um oh scapegoat yeah blaming alcohol but then you can also say oh the alcohol made my partner do this the alcohol made my partner do that so therefore that is assigning blame to the alcohol but then that healing can happen with the partner and the forgiveness and the journey and it's a way to like kind of unburden that shame yeah um for them to say oh i don't normally act like that yeah it's alcohol that was driving the bus here. So I'm glad you covered that aspect of it because the thing that popped into my mind was some, I agree with you, but it was something totally different. And that is that forgiveness is 
can be a solo act. We've actually talked quite about the quite a bit about this in the past. Forgiveness does not have to require an apology. Sometimes our best bet, our best chance, because the perpetrator is either unwilling or unable for one reason or another to give that apology or to make that amends or to change their ways. Um, sometimes forgiveness is a solitary act. We can recognize that the person that has harmed us had a lot of stuff going on and, and a lot of battles they were fighting and, and maybe not successfully. And we can find empathy and forgiveness as a solitary act and allow us to move on. So I think it's a very valid, it's a very valid question. Um, one that I think a lot of people wrestle with. It's not, it's not easy. I don't think our answers were simplistic or glib. Um, it's a, it's definitely a challenge, but I still think that, uh, blaming the alcohol, having that kind of third party in the relationship, like you said, said, Sherry, um, get you out of that shame and blame cycle. And it's perhaps the only way forward. Yeah. And I think that that you're right with the forgiveness piece. If you have your, the partner never accepts responsibility, then you can forgive on your own, but you can also say, well, the alcohol was driving them to still continue to be in the shame and um, place and repeat the cycle and maybe never get healthy. Yeah. So you can say it wasn't, it's not them. It's the addiction. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you listener for that wonderful question. Thank you, Bavini, for agreeing to join us on the Intoxicated Podcast. We're glad you're here. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You have a compelling story, a, a story that is going to touch a lot of people. And we want to go chronologically with this one. We want to start at the beginning. How did you and your husband first meet? Okay. So um, I often say to people, my husband and I, I mean, I feel like it's a very romantic story, actually. So we met when I was 13 and he was 16. Initially, we were very young and through family. So we had a lot of family in common and a lot of um, kind of long-standing relationships <clears throat> from the past. So we kind of met. Um, he lived in America and I was at that time in the UK. And I remember when I first met him, I had a massive crush on him, so, which, <laughs> which actually continued um, all the way through my 20s. I mean, I always thought he was this really cool guy. Um, and, you know, he had a bike and he always had different colored hairstyles and he was just a cool guy. Um, and then what happened was obviously we both um, just, I guess, were growing up in different places, had different lives, but we'd meet each other at various weddings. Um, so, you know, we'd kind of hang out at different weddings and, you know, just and found that we had a kinship all the way through our teens and, and early 20s. And there was one occasion I visited um, America where he lived um, and we went on a night out. We had a great night and, you know, we ended up saying, oh, you know, I really like you to each other. But I think at that point we were still kind of immature. I was with someone else um, and it just seemed really unrealistic. So we kind of let it go. And then as time progressed, we kind of, well, I got married um, and he got married to someone else. And then we kind of lost touch for many years as you do. Um, but then subsequently I went through 
I went through a divorce. It was quite a painful divorce. And, and so did he actually. And then um, we kind of were in contact via Facebook a few times. And then just suddenly out of nowhere in around 2016, <clears throat> my cousin created a WhatsApp group and he added my husband to that WhatsApp group. And, um, you know, so we reconnected kind of uh, later on in life, um, having gone through all the trials of our previous relationships. And, you know, we kind of struck up a, you know, we just, we kind of just picked up, you know, we started talking um, and we were quite often just by WhatsApp or just on calls and things. And so that's how we reconnected. But it was really funny because there was no reason why he had to be on this WhatsApp group, but he kind of messaged me outside it and we, and it kind of started from there. Um, so, and do you want me to tell you about then like meeting and then marriage and so on? And, or do you want me to um, kind of like, sorry. Yeah, no yeah. Okay. no you're doing great yeah just yeah how long was the courtship um once you were reconnected did and and did you both remember that moment years past when you had expressed the fact that you had interest in each other yeah I mean it was really um so I will tell the whole story then because it's I you know I sometimes when I tell it I'm like will people believe everything that happened so yeah no we we started talking and we were messaging and he was at that point in New York. I was in London. I'd kind of, I was running a business at that point. My son was still small. Um, and, you know, the first time I met, we spoke for a very long time. Um, and I'll come back to that later on, actually. Um, he spoke for ages and he was always, I remembered him to be someone who was very open, very talkative, very easy, actually, to talk with. Um, and very curious about things and very funny, actually. And so it was very easy to strike up conversation and keep messages going. And then that happened pretty consistently for a period of time. And then he went very silent. And then I had nothing for a period of time. And I remember getting quite upset and saying, well, look, there's a there's level of unreliability here. Um, we were kind of a year into to kind of talking with each other. And then, um, then I guess we were living our separate lives. I was trying to date and not very successfully in London. And at the end of about um, 2017, I get a message from my husband saying, hey, just wanted to see how you're doing and kind of just picking up things and I thought oh well look must there must have been a reason for this and so we started um talking with each other once again and I said to him look I think if we want this to be a thing then we have to meet it can't just be on the phone and he said to me well I think that makes a lot of sense um so we decided actually kind of thinking about it I was like well look maybe if you come to London it'll be a great idea and then I thought about it I thought well no there's too much family around <laughs> not doing that um and then he said well why don't you come to the states and where he was living and then we thought about it and thought mm, maybe not too much family around so we decided to meet in New York and had the most romantic um first date you know we met we were there for about three days and you know we were in a beautiful hotel it's the Kimpton Hotel and kind of 
you know, because he'd spent time in New York, he showed me around, we went, we ate tamales, I've never had tamales before, we kind of looked at, and he loves design and architecture and buildings, and, you know, I, did I like you, those things. Did you meet at the top of the Empire State <laughs> Building, and did you watch Sleepless <laughs> no, in Seattle no. before you made the meeting? <laughs> no, we didn't, we should have, that would have really added to it, but no, we didn't, we ate, we met in the hotel foyer but it was it was just really nice I mean he was he gave me a big hug um he was still um himself I you know he looked different I hadn't seen him for like I don't know 15 20 years or something um but you know I could tell it was him and you know we spent those three days in New York and it was for me a very you know it's an exhilarating experience it would be for anyone if you kind of put in a position of meeting someone that you'd had a massive crush on and then you're in New York and you're having a romantic time it was beautiful and so we had a courtship which was we were going back and forth you know he'd be we'd meet we met in Iceland at one point um at a lake house at another point and then he was in London for a while so we had a courtship that was very you know it lasted about eight months actually before he proposed so it was very quick but we were in this very um, exciting, romantic courtship. Was then, alcohol a part of your courtship? Your like when you was there wine with dinner? Was there were there any red flags or or did it feel you know how did it feel at that time? Well, yeah. So this is actually where I was going to come back to what I was going to come back to because when I look back over everything what I do recognize is that there were red flags all along the way. In fact, he told me it wasn't even, it's like a red flag on the first day. He said, I think I have a little bit of a problem with alcohol. And in my mind, it just didn't register in any significant way. And it sounds, and this is something I've had to deal with subsequently because, you know, people will often say, well, didn't you know? And the reality is that, yeah, I did know because he told me, but at the same time, I think the level of awareness I had and what it meant to me was so significantly different. I mean, I remember saying, well, look, whatever it is, we'll sort it out. It's not a problem. It was a problem. And I think that some of the unreliability that I had seen early on, you know, the lack, you know, the communication that fell um when he went silent that was part of it um I know he he told me about his time in New York which sounded very um like there there was a lot going on with him then um there were problems with his work there were problems with showing up so the signs were there I think what happened was that um and it sounds surprising to people because I was in my late 30s at that point so maybe I should have known better but really I was I felt like I was with someone I could communicate with. He was he's a sensitive person. Um, uh, and I think one of the things with, which one of the problems with alcohol is that sometimes you, you want to kind of figure out who is this person outside of the, the alcohol. So often later on, he would say to me, well, look, I'm not the same person if I'm not drinking. But I mean, that wasn't a conversation we were having at that point. At that point, um, I could see that alcohol was a feature of all of our trips. I did think to myself, well, there's a lot, but I never really understood what a lot was. Um, so he would, his drink of choice was vodka from the beginning. And he would have multiple drinks. 
and again, I didn't really understand that because I had seen people drink in my life. And really when, you know, when sometimes when you're out or you're with friends, people will often drink a fair bit and you would think, oh, this is a normal night or you're on holiday and people drink and you you don't really count it. You think, well, this is a holiday or this is a break. So it was- Especially, it, yeah. it strikes me that during your- courtship because it almost makes it easier to cover up the red flag or easier to ignore the red flag because you were living on different continents. And when you did meet up, it was, it was such an occasion. I mean, meeting in Iceland, meeting in a lake house. So yes, it's all these vacation-y type things where sadly in our society, you just expect people to drink. So it isn't, it isn't a scenario where you would expect someone to be, to be sober necessarily. You've got that. On top of that, you mentioned that you had a previous marriage that didn't work out and that the dating scene was difficult. So I think there's all kinds of reasons why you would be very hopeful. This is someone that you clearly could connect with and they were a sensitive being. And so you want to, you know, not even ignore the red flags. You want to see all the positive in it because of some previous experiences. I think that just balances the fact that you're referencing the fact that you were in your late thirties. Maybe you should have known better. But I, I would say you're in your late 30s. You've had enough experiences that went sideways that you you're really hopeful, and 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 this person brings something to the table that's different, and yeah. so that optimism is very justifiable. I think mm-hmm. if that I would makes say sense. That, yeah, and I would say that both of us, him more so than me, actually by temperament, were kind of optimist, romantic optimists. Mm. You know, there is that a little bit of that. Um, and it's interesting because I remember, so during the, so we had this very intense but short courtship that lasted about eight months and then he proposed. But I do know that even before he proposed, I'd said to him, I remember having calls with him late at night where he just sounded absolutely wasted. And I would say, look, this is not going to work. You need to get this under control. And the other bit for us was figuring out what would happen. like in terms of work and like filling your day and these were things that had been spoken about but I would say that on the other side my husband was someone who when you spoke to him had a great deal of confidence and he would often say it's not a problem I'm not as bad as x y and z Um, I'll figure it out when I move it'll be okay it's just really difficult in my current situation or I'm really, or it's because of boredom. So there'll be all sorts of things. And I think that as someone who understands um, addiction a bit better now, I can look back and go, those were really, I think what you might say universalisms in terms of coming up with reasons. But at the time I accepted them because I thought, well, you know, it'll be a matter of stopping. And actually, um, that's not how it works. <laughs> it's not yeah. it. That's not how it works. And um, so we, you know, and, and another occasion after he'd proposed, uh, you know, the same conversation had happened. But he was always very open to listening and responsive. So I thought these were very positive attributes. Um, certainly better than other people I dated or been with. So yeah, this was. This was actually someone who was listening, which I thought was a positive thing. And he was a good listener, actually. He would listen. But I think 
the reason and and just speaking about that listener question earlier on the reason why it's been helpful to me to look back and go it wasn't so much him so as much as the alcohol is to kind of help me uh with the process of understanding everything that happened because because I know my husband was a good person I know he was a sensitive man I know he had a generous spirit and so and alcohol does those things where it takes away the things that you really love about someone because of the the, the disease that it is so you know we you know when we then got married so we had this courtship we he proposed we got married relatively quickly because he was in the states we got married in vegas that should have been another possibly <laughs> another red flag but it was it was fun i mean it was in the sense that and again alcohol was there um and it was but it was a very kind of unrealistic fantastical setting for us we got married at the little white chapel it was the second marriage for both of us. So we thought we could have some fun with it. Um, and it was good. I mean, he played um, that Bruno Mars song, you know, you know, I'll marry you. You know, the song where he says, you know, if I wake up in the morning and this was a mistake, we'll just forget about it. So it was just a fun sort of uh, experience. So and with the eight month courtship, were you the only people getting married that day in Vegas who had had more than 45 minutes of courtship? Like, were you setting no, records you know with what? you? No, it was so funny because we turned up and they were like, look, we have to make sure that people are sober before they get <laughs> married. So we need you to confirm that you haven't been drinking and that we did a very early kind of 11 o'clock. So not very, very early, but 11 o'clock kind of a thing. So I mean, there had been alcohol consumed actually by then, and that should have been another kind of thing because it was a it was a a thing that would happen. You know, we'd go on holiday, we wake up, have a drink at breakfast. It wasn't something that I normally did, but it just seemed to fit. And um, so anyway, we turned, but they did ask. <laughs> I don't know whether I don't know how they tested. There's no like breathalyzer or anything. So, um, and we got married, um, but you do have to register and you do have to, you have to confirm these things before you turn up. So they have a couple of things in place, but um, yes, yeah, so we did the, <laughs> we did the Cadillac. You have a few different, you can have the one in the booth or you can have a Cadillac or you can have the chapel. So we went for the Cadillac. So that was great. Um, <laughs> just, but I mean, all of these things, they don't, they kind of also express a little bit of who we were as a couple. You know, we were looking to make, I, I, he got me um, the the ring that I got him, actually. We got a box and on the back boxes said plan B because we were both like, well, this this has to work. Now. We've done it before. We're going to do it again. So there was. I think I think that's a really important point. Not only the optimism might be clouding the red flags, but also the the just desire, you know, you've you've lived a segment of your life that has had romantic challenges and has not been successful from a partnership standpoint. And you really want this to work. I mean, you really, really want this to work. And so ignoring things or being optimistic that you can work through them and make them go away. I think that's an important part part of your story and something that is really, really, really relatable. Um, so thank thank you for you know sharing that. 
so, so let's keep, so you, so you get married. Is the drinking progressing early in the marriage or is it steady state? Like what, what's the level of concern for you? So the level of concern was there. Um, and I, and I think I bought into, and I think this is something that people often do from my reading now, which is that I bought into this idea that when, when he comes to London, when he moves here, then everything that is causing him to drink more where he is will change yeah. and that, you know, his promises around, well, you know, once I'm in the house, once I'm settled, once I have the job, once I'm in, then, you know, it won't be, and, you know, we're just traveling at the moment. We're just having a good time. It's just, you know, it's just, 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 and there were always occasions where it was, you know, if it was the wedding reception or if it was going away or there was someone's party, like, you know, this is just because it's happening here. And then what happened, and I'll just kind of fast forward a little bit, because actually, you know, we got married in July 2019. And then by July 2020, he'd been in, um, he'd been in London, and living in the house, and we'd already started having uh, lots and lots of conversations around the drinking, because what became apparent to me that I think I was either just denying really I think or just not really full or hadn't fully comprehended was that this was just daily like and I, and I didn't know how difficult it would be to live with someone who was drinking daily um, because you, sometimes it would be fine or sometimes I'd get home to someone who was who drunk a bit too much um, and was really upset about something and so that became quite hard um, and then that got overlaid with conversations around, you know, and marriage is already difficult. Any relationship is already hard. You've already got two people trying to make two different, possibly two different value systems working or, you know, habits, all of those things. So the alcohol didn't help because we couldn't really always have the conversation. So it was already quite hard. And in that process, um, he'd, um, you know, by July 2020, he'd got a job and lost a job. We'd also lost um, his grandmother, who was a big influence in his life. And so a lot of things had already started happening. And then um, there had been occasions when we'd been with family where it was very apparent that he was very, very drunk and at a much faster pace than everyone else. So I remember a cousin of mine said to my sister at one point, oh, he must be just not have very much tolerance because they didn't see the drinking. They just saw the couple of drinks when we were together and then the behavior. So, so that was already causing arguments within the house, not arguments, but just like, well, we need to deal with this. What are you doing about it? And I should really mention that at this point, we'd already, it, one of our trips experienced a seizure so before we'd even got married, my husband had experienced a seizure and I didn't I didn't understand what that was about. But he would said to me, it's fine. I'll get an MRI done. I'll go to a doctor here. It's not a problem. <laughs> there seems, you know, there was always this. I'll fix it. And what happened was in July 2020, um, we decided, well, we'll take a little bit of break. We kind of lockdown had we'd had the first lockdown being lifted and we went away. 
And it was the first point at which I think I realized that something significant was going on, which was because when we uh, when we were away, the first day we got there, uh, I'd been driving because, you know, we'd, we'd known he'd had, um, you know, a seizure before. So I was like, OK, you know, I was always the one driving. So we drove there. Um, we got to this place. It's called the New Forest in, in the UK. It's like a beautiful area with like lots of walking and hiking and all of these types of things. And um, we went out for just a walk, a couple of hours, um, got back. Um, he got, had a shower, got changed, went downstairs. And then I get a call from reception just saying, your husband's having a seizure you need to come downstairs and so I obviously went downstairs we we got him to hospital um and he was in hospital for three days in the end um and what and and luckily for us in the UK we have the NHS so he was in hospital and at the end of the three-day stay we got a report saying um he'd been put on detox medication, um, he'd been given anti-seizure medication, and he'd been diagnosed, well, they basically said, we think there's alcohol dependence here, um, and you need to have expert care, you need to speak to, um, they've referred us to an organization and to a neurologist. So I think at had, that had point, he not yeah. had he not been drinking during the traveling and during that morning was it a withdrawal driven yeah. seizure? So yeah, so I think that was the withdrawal happening. So what what subsequently I came to learn was that in the house the reason why it was so difficult was because there had been a daytime drinking, which I mean the interesting thing is is that once I knew when he had too much to drink but I never always knew that he had been drinking and so once we had this trip I think I was really frightened in a way that I hadn't quite and I think that was really why it became so difficult for me subsequently going on because I I really felt like this was you know this was life-threatening and everything I read would kind of support that um, and, and so from that point onwards, um, we had a lot of the kind of dynamics of the alcoholic relationship really showed up because I think up to that point, I was kind of willing to go, well, you take it at your own pace. We'll see what happens. I was kind of massaging it um, and not really fully recognizing what was happening and I think from that point onwards it became something that I couldn't ignore and in fact in fact I felt like if I did ignore it that I was being negligent in some ways and I really took on that role um and you know I've only learned now that sometimes it's you know stepping away or detaching from it is better but I like when I was in it I just went into that mode of trying to figure it out so my thing in life was always, look, if there's a problem, we'll fix it. And, you know, I think we've talked about it before. Like we didn't, you know, in my family, for good or bad, we've had this, we've had experience which tells us that if you have a problem in life, you just find a way through it. Um, and so that's how I approached, that's how I approached this. And you can imagine that it didn't necessarily 
work out. But but after the health but after the health scare, as opposed to letting him talk you, you know, into patients, like by saying, "Oh, I'll take care of it. I'll get the MRI. I'll look into it." Now, after this this morning where they've called you down, you know, and he's having the seizure in the hotel lobby. Um, now you're, you're more aggressively pursuing, like, you're like, look, I got to fix it. Not just, not just, I'll let him fix it and we'll see what happens, but you're rolling up your sleeves and saying, I got to get in here. We got to, we got to make this because you're scared. Yeah. No, I think, I think that was it. Exactly. I think because, and I come from a a medical background as well. So we'd had the doctor's report we'd had, and I've had, um, in my own past, I've had cancer. So I remember when I got the diagnosis, my approach was, I'm just going to do whatever I'm told to do, and I will just get through it. And I think in my mind, I had, I empathize. So my husband would say, look, you don't understand what it's like to be in this. And I didn't understand addiction, but I did say to him, I do understand what it's like to be scared for my health and well-being. Um, But we need to, we need to follow this. But I think that the the thing that I've come to learn, not just through echoes, but through, you know, uh, you know, Amber Hollingworth's YouTube videos and all the other things that I read is that at the point that I started then confronting the, the drinking in a much more kind of, uh, I don't know, systematic way. So I'd be, I would ask him, well, you know, because we had a referral to um, uh, an organization called Change Grow Live in the UK, which helps with addiction and alcohol dependency. And, you know, sometimes he would turn up to the appointments online or sometimes he wouldn't. And then obviously I would then, not obviously, not everyone would do this, but I would ask, well, how was the appointment? What happened? Did you go? Why did you, you know, what happened? And sometimes he'd miss them because he was drinking. And then the drinking seemed to then like get, progressively worse as well so not just everything that I was we were trying wasn't really like wasn't really working I I don't know how to explain so we tried a lot of different things so in that we had basically a year where you know we tried the change grow live and then I was because obviously my husband didn't want me to speak to any friends or anyone about it um I I remember because we we had another lockdown here so we were allowed to go for walks there was one friend I ended up confiding in and she you know bless her she was also trying to come up with ideas both of us didn't really know what to do um and so she said well what about hypnotherapy I've had hypnotherapy so we suggest we tried a hypnotherapist um and he was drunk at the appointment um we tried I spoke to a physical trainer to say well can you help because I thought maybe if we start with the exercise and then maybe the drinking will lessen so the drinking was there all the way through this so there you know I think at that at that point when I I was also doing that thing where you start looking for bottles so I was then finding the bottles I was finding kind of liter bottles of vodka just in cupboards and in bags and you know, I remember one point I went to the general kind of, we call them news agents here, but they're basically stores where they sell everything, alcohol included, right at the end of our road. 
And I went in one day and I was like, please stop, don't sell him alcohol. Like just don't. And I was, because I got so desperate at that point because I couldn't, in the evenings, I had someone I couldn't really speak with. Um, there was a lot of sleeping through the day. Um, at that point, you know, my husband had tried to find it, found another job, but then was not performing in the job. All sorts of things were going on. And so I, it's really, I just, and so my thing has been to try and work out, was I made, did I make it worse? That was my, that's been the thing that I've grappled with the most, but did I make it worse? Um, and I got to a point did, where- Did you, did you make it worse by doing everything you possibly could think of to do, to try to save him all with the, the biggest heart and with the best intentions, but, but still in hindsight, you're, you're worried that, you know, you, you had, you know, the, the, one of the words that Sherry and I love so much in this game is enabled, right? So you're, mm -hmm. you're wondering if any of your actions had done that. Um, what a, what a terrible position for you to have to be in. Were you getting any family support? You've mentioned how close you are with both sides of the family. Mm -hmm. Were you getting any family support at this point? Yeah. So I think the point at which my husband had his seizure in, in July, 2020, I called his father um and um and I actually that's it's been an interesting journey for me speaking with his father because I didn't speak to my parents at that point my husband didn't want me to speak to them um I was speaking to my sister she's a doctor and she had a you know she had a very nice relationship with him she would but I think she was she'd seen people with addiction before so she was very clear about what was going on um but she wasn't um you know she wasn't living in the house with him. So she was able to be a bit more detached and say, well, this is what I think needs to happen. And she was a great support. But I felt like his father would be the only person who might be able to speak with him. And so they would speak um, and he had the ability to calm my husband down. So when my husband would get very upset about something that was going on, because I think, you know, as you know, with any relationship and including an alcoholic relationship, what happens is that once the dynamic starts becoming dysfunctional and you have that thing of well why did you not speak to the counselor or why did you not make that appointment and then that person may end up in the, what now I know is a shame cycle or that cycle of feeling like they're being blamed or attacked or feeling defensive so then we'd end up in these arguments about things so his father did have the ability to ca calm him down but I think that it was really so he was the support on the phone for for a period of time. And then we got to the and I and I kind of take it forward a bit because then the drinking got to a point where I was I wasn't sure who I who I was turning up to the um, that we'd had a number of other seizures um, because he would try to um, just stop drinking which was which is obviously not medically advised and so all of these things were going on I would get more worried because I, my view was that he needed to be in a detox facility and uh, you know and there was pushback on that and so we got to a point where um, he finally in about October um, 2021 at that point he'd lost his next job um, and he was drinking that kind of a liter of vodka a day. 
um, sometimes carrying it in water bottles. And, you know, I was just, I was unable to, I, I just couldn't deal with that. I couldn't deal with, and I felt, you know, the, the first time I heard this and I was like, this is the thing that resonates with me. I I, I saw one of um, Amber's YouTube videos where she talks about that betrayal trauma. And I know that, you know, our story started in about 2018 and we're only in 2021, but I got to a point where I was like, this was my second marriage. And there were so many promises made. And I was so worried that, you know, I was, my son was here. He could hear us arguing. I remember on some occasions he'd come into the room and tell us to stop arguing. And I just thought to myself, I don't want my son to be in this. I really was not, this was not the hope for a second marriage. So I think by the time he lost the second job, I just said to, I remember saying to my husband, I think that, I th I said, look, it I said, regardless of us as a relationship, it seems to me that everything is pointing to this needs to be dealt with. I said, look, even before you were here, you lost your, you know, he'd had problems with his previous work. Um, he'd had uh, issues with a, a driving offense. Um, we'd had the seizures at the lake house. I said, everything is telling us that this needs to be dealt with in a serious way. And I can't think of what else to do anymore. And um, and it sounds, I don't know. And so this is the this is the point at which, you know, I really have to start thinking about whether I made the right choice or not. But um I remember at one point, one of my friends many years ago had said to me, sometimes when you want to make a change in life, you just do something big. Like when there's a big problem, do something. And I thought, well, this is a situation which we have to do something big. Like this is not, you know, all of the, like the hypnotherapy or physics, none of this is really cutting. All, the, all the little wasn't working. So you needed a big. Yeah, we needed a big. So, and I don't know whether it was my, it was in my gift or not, but I just said to my husband, I think you need to leave. I think you need to either go to detox or go back home and detox properly at home. If this environment is too much, because he would say, look, it's a lot for me. I've moved countries. I'm dealing with, you know, living in a family, trying to find a new job. And I, I did understand all of those things. It's not that I didn't understand it. I did feel, I did feel that they were like excuses. Um, if I can say that, I felt like he was saying it's all these reasons. That's why I'm drinking. So I did get to a point where I was I wasn't even listening to the 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 hardship that he was feeling. I did get to a point where I thought I can't hear it anymore because I'd heard it so often that I just felt like it was. It felt like you know we've got this big thing. We've got this huge elephant in the room. But we're talking about, I don't know, the circus that's going on around. Like, it just didn't make any sense. So I did say, look, I think you need to leave and you need to go home. Or well, go and the, the, the place within the family where you had seen the most effective support was with his father. His father was able to reach him and calm him down, at least. And his father was also... and And... Help me understand the story. Was it in the moment or was it later that his father was also saying, listen, I think the living in London is a big part of his drinking and the escalating drinking. Was he saying that in the moment or did he did he tell you that later? 
no that was later on okay. so yeah so when um when my husband went back so interestingly when my husband went back to america he said look i see what you're saying i can see that there's an issue um i know that you know these these points that you've made are right and i'll i'll sort it out and really i remember at that point i did then at, once he left i did speak to some of my best friends and i said you know this has happened this is what's going on but he said to me, it'll be three months, then he'll be back home. He's going to try and taper at home. He'll figure it out. He'll be back. And really, I think, and at that, we had already started trying some marriage counseling. And I carried on speaking to a therapist while he was, while he was in the States. But when he went to the States, there was a, I mean, uh, you know, he was with my father-in-law, who is a you know, a very kind, very compassionate, a very understanding person, very patient person, actually. And and he said, look, it's fine. Bring it, let him come here. I've got time. You've got other things going on. And it'll be it'll be the you know, we'll, we'll figure it out when we're here. Now, I think what happened for me was that when my husband was in America, I just didn't see things happening. You know, I I was expecting a neurologist to be booked. I was expecting a therapist. I was expecting medically supervised detox, all of these things. Because those were the things that we had, well, I thought we talked about. And we had the neurologist in London who he would, you know, and I would send him medication from here. But there was, but I found that in those first three months, nothing was happening. And actually the thing that really started to, wear me down was that he would say I want to go traveling or and I would think to myself well this is insane why would you why go traveling and then he was doing Reiki and I think I've mentioned to you before I just didn't understand what the purpose of that was and so there was a different approach I mean I I think that so and then like speaking to my father-in-law after what I think he was trying to do he doesn't necessarily believe in medication but he does think that meditation and spirituality are very helpful in calming people down and and really I would say that I I can understand that now at the time I was really upset at the time I was I would I wouldn't just I'd never disrespect my father-in-law we like that's we don't disrespect our elders but I would get really upset inside myself with with him because I think well why are you not saying anything why don't you tell him to go to a detox why don't you tell him to do that but I think that what I've come to recognize is that you know he did what he felt was the best that he could and that was his it's the same way I would say well I thought my approach was the right approach or someone and and the thing with addiction is is that None of us has really, unless I was thinking about this the other day, unless you're kind of a saint and a therapist and a doctor rolled into one, you know, you're not, you're not really, you're not able to uh, deal with this because we all have different skills. And if we all had those skills, we'd be, you know, it'd be, it would be a different world. But unfortunately, you know, my, my well, father and- yeah, so. and not only are the the caretakers that not only are the practitioners on the recovery side, they have different skill sets and it's hard to roll them all into one, as you just described. 
but also as the addicts, as the alcoholics ourselves, our needs differ as well. Some of us need a bigger spiritual component. Some of us need to understand the how brain chemistry works. We need the the more technical side. Um, you know, we, there are crossovers for sure, but it's not one size fits all. If it was one size fits all, there wouldn't be 15 million alcoholics in the United States right now. So, um, you know, finding, dialing in the right approach for each individual is so difficult. I'm curious though, when we talk to people who have had a spouse go away to a rehab, a 30 day, a 60 day, a 90 day inpatient rehab, they usually talk about a feeling of calm in the house. Mm -hmm. They're able to let their guard down. Some of that nervous system dysregulation calms for a bit. It sounds like your husband went to a different continent, went back to the United States and you would, you would hope for that peacefulness, but because you are tracking the care that he's getting or the things that you had talked about that he would pursue that he's not, I can imagine you didn't get much relief for the time that he was gone. No, I mean, I didn't. And actually, and it's actually an interesting point that you make because whilst he was there, so, you know, there would be a trip. He made a trip to Vegas with a friend. He went to spend a night with a friend. A friend came over and they they gambled on the night. There was another trip. And I was just really just going, I can't see this really improving. And then, and I was speaking to a therapist at the time and she said to me, "Do you, and I said, look, I feel like I need to like say this or send the medication. or the, And she said, do you think it's your responsibility to do it? And I really grappled with this because at that point I thought, well, maybe I need to just, because I would say, can you tell me how you're tapering? You know, there's that control that people talk about. I really wanted to know. And I, and he would say to me, look, it doesn't work that way. Um, so, you know, I think the way that I'm doing it is the way it needs to be done. So I, I kind of had to, I had to actually, one, he was in a different place, but I had to just for myself, just say, look, I can't, because I would worry all the time. So if he, if he went somewhere, I would worry that something would happen and he'd have a seizure. So then I'd say to him, I'm really worried something's going to happen. And then we would end up in a thing where he would say, all you do is talk about the drinking. You can't see me as, me as a human being, which I think is I, actually a fair comment from him. Um, but it didn't reflect, but my worry was the alcohol. That was my number one thing. So we got to a point where she said, I mean, she said to me, well, do you think it's your responsibility or do you think um, it's his? And I said, well, I don't, I, I guess it's his, but really, I don't know whether, I didn't trust him to make the decisions. It, I, the trust was really gone at all levels. And I think that that, that is not a nice person position for someone to be in. Like not, it wasn't nice for him to be in at all because he he would say, well, look, I, you need to, I mean, I can't, pers a person has to have agency. They have to have their own thing. So I did have to kind of step, take a step back. But I think, but the hard thing of that is, so just to kind of move the story on a bit. So he was still there. So, I, and I said to him, look, don't, don't worry, whatever it takes take six months, take eight months. I don't actually mind. I just want to see that you're doing something. And then I remember he said to me, well, why don't you tell me what you want? Send me a list of all the things you need. And then we'll, and I, and I sent him an email. And in that email, I said, the first thing was, I need you to be sober for three months. 
and I need you to talk about what we're going to do when we live in the house together and all sorts of other things because you know when you're in a relationship there are things like you know values that we couldn't really talk about I was like I don't know how are we going to create a home what's our future look like so all of these things that I wanted to speak with him about but it couldn't because the alcohol made it so that you couldn't really talk about anything I felt and so he got the email and the first thing he said to me was I can't do any of this you want a different person so I'm done and at that point um I just felt a complete sense of um I just thought I can't understand I couldn't understand it I, I I mean I was like you know there's so much rope I felt I'd given him but I felt like he would say well you're not you know I wasn't sensitive enough I wasn't emotional enough I was not caring enough I wasn't you know supportive enough and and I just didn't know I couldn't at that point support him because I said I can't I feel like I I don't know how to do it because I'm just I'm so upset you're asking for support from someone who's just so upset it's really hard um and he said I can't do it so he said I think we're done at that point um it, I said, well, why don't we try? Yeah. It sounds very much like, you know, the the top thing on your email, the top thing on your list is this three months of sobriety. I, I can almost put myself in his position. And after trying for sobriety and, and being this physically and mentally dependent on alcohol, I can see him reading that and saying, I, I just can't do that. And that's not, so I'm going to, especially when you, cross-reference that with the fact that he's taking these trips. And like you said, one of the trips was to Vegas. I mean, an alcoholic should never go to Vegas if they're trying to find recovery. I don't care if you're there for a trade show or to see the Cirque du Soleil. I don't care what the purpose is. That's not a town you should go to if you have an alcohol use disorder. And so it almost sounds like he's saying, look, I'm going to live my best life. I'm going to do my best with alcohol as part of it because I have given up, like I'll accept defeat from alcohol. And, and if that's at the top of your list, then it's a, it's a non-starter. Yeah. I mean, I don't fully understand what was really happening because I think what happened was that once that email went, and I said, let's try marriage counseling, marriage counselors said, look, we're not going to do counseling until he's sober. So, I mean, all of these things were just not really working. So I was like, fine, okay. And I and at that point, I was just, I would, I didn't want to, because there would always be this feeling of abandonment. You know, he'd be like, you've just left me. And I would say, I don't feel like, I said, I didn't, I didn't want to leave you. You were supposed to go there and come back. That was the plan. So all of this stuff was going on. And I think, uh, you know, and then, you know, my grandmother passed away, one of my aunts passed away. And things got a bit calmer, actually, at my end, despite all of those things, because we were no longer talking about the, I would say, I think you need to get help. But I I felt at that point, I don't need to keep saying anything, I'll let him. And we were still in touch, we were talking, Um, he would send me photos, I would send him things that were going on here. So we never really had that you know I never the funny thing is when people say well you know when you separate or you leave an alcoholic you don't stop loving them 
you just get to a point where you just think I can't understand how especially if you've never dealt with it before you just can't understand how this person can't see that it's going to be invaluable to have a future to not have the alcohol and that's what was but actually I never stopped caring for him I always thought you know in fact I hoped I hoped that this would be the thing that would get him to sobriety like you know she she said she's going to do this and now she's done it like you know it's that's what I thought would happen I think there are a lot of similarities between being on my side of the fence and being on your side of the fence of the fence in that you know in order for me to get sober I had to exhaust every possible scenario I could come up with to keep alcohol in my life I tried moderation. I put all these rules around it. I did everything I could think of to keep alcohol in my life. And finally, I realized nothing is going to work. And I've been trying for years. And so I had to, you know, realize that my only option, my only way forward was to stop drinking. It sounds very much like you tried everything you could think of. You tried the rolling up your sleeves and being involved on a daily basis in trying to get him to find recovery, to, you know, go back to the States, do it, do it your way, do it, you know, with the uh, help and influence of your, of your father. And, you know, you get to the point where you've tried everything you can think of and you recognize you're out of, out of options from, from your perspective. When people talk about detachment, if they read about it in a book or they hear us talk about it on the podcast um, and then they try it, it often fails because, they haven't, you know, they haven't exhausted everything yet. Mm-hmm. And, and while theoretically it's the only thing that makes any sense when it comes to recovery until you, if, if you're a go-getter, you said it, your, your family orientation is to get in there and fix problems when they're, they arise. If, if you come from that background and that perspective, until you've tried everything you can think of, you're not going to be able to say, you know, I, I've done everything I can and I've got to relinquish control. Did, did it get to did it get to the point where you just feel like I've tried everything I don't know what else to do well I think that the I guess the the clearest example of that is so before so uh, you know you will know and I guess like listeners now will know my my husband then passed away really tragically then in in May um 2022 so it's just been over a year and so just coming up to that, my husband went away to Florida for three weeks. And by that point, we'd made this decision that we were going to go down the divorce route, um, but kind of not done anything about it. None of the paperwork had been done. We were still in touch. But, uh, you know, he and it was actually the trip to the Florida trip that made me think this is not this is really not going anywhere good because and I, you know, it could be that because a relationship hadn't worked or what the reasons were, but he was there for three weeks. He had a seizure in Florida. And I remember when he was in Florida, I said, I think you still need to be in detox. I think you need to be taking his medication. He started cutting down on his medication. So the, so even if he, so it was supposed to work that if he cut down the alcohol, there was withdrawal medication that he was taking and other anti-epileptic medications, but he stopped taking it. So I got really upset about that, but then I left it. And then the where the hard bit about this, the detachment and like having to let go for me was 
because just before he passed, um, he called me and he said, you know, I'm, I've, I'm not feeling very well. I've been throwing up. He got back from the Florida trip and he wasn't well. And I was like, okay, look, just look after yourself. Make sure you've got fluids and I'll, I'll talk to you later. And that was really probably a couple of days before he passed. And normally what I would have said is, have you done, have you taken your medications? Have you taken electrolytes? Have you seen, you know, have you thought about this? I would have gone online. I would have probably said maybe, and I didn't do any of those things. And for me, the hardest bit has been to reconcile not doing those things and then him passing. Mm. Now, we don't know. He had a seizure and then he collapsed. We don't know. There's nothing on the death certificate. I feel that um, his drinking contributed to his death. And I think people who've been in alcoholic relationships will know when some when they know their partner's health because you've lived with them, you know it. I knew what was going on. And um, and for me, that's been that has been one of the most difficult aspects of not just losing my husband. I mean, I will always I'll always miss him. Um, but just the complications around losing someone who's had addiction or someone who you feel you have responsibility to. And um, that's been very, very hard, actually. Um, and I think it's taken me over a year to kind of get to um, understanding the uh, understanding addiction as as a disease. I didn't really understand that before. And also just um, not blaming myself for not doing the things that um, I thought I should be doing. Because actually, looking back, my husband had, you know, a, such a huge level of compassion and care from his father. And he had all the, like, if you want to say the practical support from me. So, and he was a very smart man. Like he, my husband knew what he was going through and what his body was doing. So I've had to accept that um, I don't know, accept that choice I made to not say anything at that point because it was well, a choice. Let, let me play devil's advocate though. What if you had gone the other route and you had said, are you taking your meds? You know, have you um, done, you know, this, that, and the other? Have you done the research? Where are you on uh, looking for a detox? And you had frustrated him to the point where he got off the phone and said, I, you know, I can't handle this yeah. anymore because that's a very real possibility of what could have happened. Now you'd be in, in mourning after the loss, you'd be blaming yourself for pushing him too hard. So you were, you were truly in a no win situation. And, you know, I just, as an outside observer, I see all the things that you did in such a loving way for him. And I can't imagine that you could possibly have done anything more. And that no matter how that last conversation went, there would be um, fuel for you to, uh, to have regret and second guessing and blame of yourself. And there's, you know, as an outside observer, there's, there's no blame that should lie on you at all. D does that make sense? You, you, no matter what you, you were in a no win situation, no matter what you said in that last conversation, you'd have something that you could look back and regret. Yeah. I mean, I think that, and and I actually, I do, having said all of that, it's, I do now feel like, you know, we, we've talked about um, uh, kind of forgiveness 
um, and you know grief and loss and we have a lot of people everywhere will have loss and grief in their lives you know whether it's they've lost someone or a job or your health all of these all of these kind of losses accumulate and I think that with um, experiencing this loss loss of my husband in the way that I have it has just made me appreciate I think one thing which is you know, this idea that I had in my life that, you know, everything is fixable, everything is uh, to a certain extent possible and doable and certain. Um, I think the gift that I've got is that, and my husband was like this, he would say, look, you know, we don't, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't have to work. We don't have to live our lives on the basis that we're reducing risk. He was a, he was, you know, and I've learned to appreciate that. I've also learned to appreciate that, you know, <clears throat> like forgiveness is such a huge thing. And, you know, we don't really talk about it in everyday life. It's such a, but I realize it's so powerful. And so, but I think it does start with like forgiving yourself. And I've had to kind of really work to forgive myself. And I think for me, it, part of it's been just understanding understanding the mechanics mechanisms of addiction understanding trying to understand my husband a lot better having a more compassion for him but also then understanding that I did what I what I could in the in the moments that I had um but it's not hard and I would yeah I mean it's not easy so I'm glad you you addressed forgiveness that's why we chose this particular listener question to do at the beginning of this episode so I was, I was hoping that we would come around to this because you have the ultimate example of having to address forgiveness without, as a solo act, without the other person being there to express whatever level of remorse that they're necessarily going to. And so when you talk about the forgiveness, starting with you and also extending to through your education about addiction, being able to forgive your spouse um, even though they're not here to get healthy, they're not here to make amends. They're not here to apologize any longer. Um, it, it, it really is a tribute to you that you have done the work and, um, and worked so hard on forgiveness. So I'm so glad you addressed that. You talked earlier about how in many ways you were your husband's practical support and your father-in-law, his father was his kind of spiritual support. How, what is your father-in-law's opinion of what took his son? Does he, is he able to step into the practical realm and see what addiction really is? Why does he think his son died? It's a, well, I think he thinks it's because he had something in his brain, a long lasting thing in his brain. And because we don't have a cause of death on the death certificate, um, and actually, it's not something that I've, I felt I needed to actually speak to him about in the sense that, you know, he, his, his belief system is a spiritual one in the sense that, you know, um, he feels that when your time is up, your time is up, and it's written, and he has belief in, you know, many, I'm from, I'm from a Hindu background, I don't practice myself, but he certainly believes in reincarnation, so he believes that he's you know he'll he'll come back again and actually this life the learning in this life is brought forward 
it's actually you live a more full life because you you take the learning from this life to the next and and I feel and I think part of my process now is understanding that actually not everyone has to be convinced of my point of view I don't have to be convinced of everyone else's point of view um there will be there will be people who might say you know well she didn't take care of him she sent him away or there might be people who say well she spent you know she did more than she needed to do there'll be people on all sorts of points of view and I think with my father-in-law the thing I've really taken from him and and is that idea of because it's interesting because I didn't really have any spirit I I wouldn't have counted myself as a spiritual person in that sense I didn't really use words like compassion and kindness or forgiveness in my daily life I would I would say I was like a, a normal you know I was just going about my life as a you know and as a lawyer we kind of we have things like duty of care responsibility but we don't have some of these other terms and and I've just re recognized that that extends to knowing like having a completely different point of view on something and and so we had um, he got the whole family together recently um, to m commemorate, remember my husband and actually his his grandmother who had passed. And he said, well, look, this is all about loving each other and laughing. So these are the values he wants to make sure are embedded in the family. And I thought to myself, look, he's he's taught me a way of looking at something and grieving, which I would not necessarily have known myself. So I feel like you know, even if we have a different understanding of what happened, I feel like I appreciate his, I appreciate what he's he's saying. I appreciate that the, the idea that spirituality has to be a part of the mix. I mean, I think that's something that, you know, I did a lot of this. I wish I knew, I wish I knew, I wish I had known that this was an important component actually of, of recovery but it was something I didn't really know about but it, it is something that is now something I would say I appreciate I I wonder I wonder if you realize how just loving and compassionate and um thoughtful I mean I think thoughtful is the right word that you truly are your respect for your father-in-law is more than you, you, you referenced earlier in the conversation that, you know, your belief system, your upbringing, you have kind of an obligatory respect for your elders. It goes far beyond this. You're, th this is someone whose opinion on the treatment and the plan diverged dramatically from your own. I don't know that I could get over being angry with that person. And you not only have gotten over being angry, but you have learned from um, his opinions and his beliefs, and you've adopted the parts of it that work for you as part of who you are. And I just think that is, I mean, tremendously commendable. Um, the the growth, I mean, this this didn't take place too terribly long ago, and the amount of growth and progress that you've made, I'm sure when you lose a spouse, it's all you can think about. So you're going to spend a lot of time in thought on that for a significant amount of time. But I'm just tremendously impressed by the respect that you show, not only out of obligation, but but because you've truly learned and appreciated um, from your father-in-law. And I, I just think that's amazing. You, you've talked 
that you you have um, experienced grief. You've talked about other losses, um, you, you know, whether it's grief from loss of life or, you know, you lost your first marriage, your first marriage didn't work out. But one of the things that I've heard you talk about is how profoundly different um, grief is in this you know, scenario with losing your, your spouse, as opposed to the other grief that you've experienced. Can you talk about how grief has shown up in your life and how you've processed it? Yeah, I think that, um, so I would say that this time, so usually what would happen is that something terrible happens. You know, my first marriage failed. I've failed. I don't want to use the word failed, but it, it ended. And then you know, I've had other things that have happened in life. And usually what would happen is that I would, I'd go into a mode of just working through it. You know, that my, my dad used to have a, a phrase, he, you know, and I, and I think he was, he's trying to help. He would have a phrase, he would say, look, you know, work is worship. If you have work in your life, you have discipline, you have uh, respect, you have, you know, you have things that keep you going. So focus on your work. So I remember, after my first marriage, I kind of spent a lot of time on my work. I built my business. Um, I did those things. I don't know whether I necessarily processed the grief from my first marriage, but I certainly was able to move through it. Um, but I think this, what happened with my husband was just so um, crushing. I mean, I can't, I couldn't, when I got the call, I got the call from my cousin and I was, actually in a place where I was feeling kind of a bit calmer like you know my grandmother we'd we'd, we'd managed to bury my grandmother and things were calm at work and you know we'd kind of got into a routine my husband and I have talked and just that morning I was thinking oh maybe I'll be able to speak up pick up the phone and I'll be able to speak to him his birthday was coming up maybe I'll be able to have a conversation that isn't and that morning when I got the call, just that that juxtaposition between feeling like, okay, maybe there's something here, maybe we'll be okay. You know, you you, you go into different kind of realms, don't you? When you when when you have hope, and then and then getting the call, it was just so it was so devastating that I couldn't. I just couldn't, there wasn't, there wasn't a mechanism I had. There wasn't a tool I had. There wasn't anything that I'd done before that I could use to help me with the grief. And I think that, you know, there is this like profound kind of loss of meaning that I felt, you know, I've, and it actually has taken me a long time to get to a point where I feel like there is, um, there, there could still be hope in life or there is still a possibility in life because really for the first year or so I was just thinking how is this that how is this a universal answer to all of everything that's happened in my life this cannot be this has no meaning um, and so the and it was complicated and for people listening to this podcast maybe they've lost someone and they've been in an alcoholic relationship or they're worried about losing someone. And, and it, it, it does complicate it. It's like the alcohol complicates life and it complicates death. Like it doesn't, it doesn't give you that space to just go, well, I'm going to honor that person, remember them. Because usually if someone passes and you're close to them and you love them, hopefully you've had a, 
good relationship. You might have had some disagreements, but you can make peace with that. But with with my husband passing in the way that he passed, I found it really hard because I had to unpick what everything that we had talked about, all of the at which point should I have done something else or should something of something different have happened or should we have got married? I mean, I had to go all the way back and it just opened up everything. But I think that it, if, if, it, if I hadn't done that, if I had kind of found a way of escaping it or like trying to avoid it, which is something that we do, obviously it makes sense to avoid pain because it's, it's the worst pain you can feel. And then I don't think I would have get, got to where I am. I don't think I would have got to a place where I feel like, you know, there is more to life just overall. Does, does the fact that, does the fact that alcohol is so often used for escapism, did that enter your mind? Did you say, I can't avoid this because that's what alcohol is about is avoiding pain. I have to, I have to work through it. Was that part of your thought process? It, it did become, and it's interesting because it did actually become part of my thinking because I thought to myself, well, because a lot of people said to me, look, just make sure you don't, uh, you know, don't drink, don't turn to alcohol. I mean, I would never have turned to alcohol anyway, I think, because it just wasn't something I did. I would normally have like turned to work or clean my house or something, you know, something activity based, um, but I couldn't even, I couldn't even get up. You know, I couldn't even, I couldn't think. My brain was like this, it was a mess. I mean, usually my husband would say to me, the reason why he he liked me, I think, was because he was like, oh, you're quite clear. You you know, you have an idea of what you want. And I, he liked that. And I was, and usually I would think, oh, I have a, a pretty good idea of what I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it. But I, I think it was the first time in my life I found myself just unable to do anything. And I think, but I think it was that process of like, um untangling everything that has helped me but it but the but understanding the alcohol was key to it for me anyway I couldn't just go oh it's just something that's happened his time was up he's at peace that was something that I couldn't do so for me part of my process was really understanding what it was that he and I had gone through in our experience and our relationship and what were the real bits and what were the bits that weren't real if there weren't any real bits and what was my role in it that was a big part of it um because that was the only thing I could really and I think that's helped me um come to an understanding and come to something and I've you know I've done I did other things which I would say to most people which is you know, when I could, um, I started exercising um, because I wasn't doing any of that. I, was, I think luckily for me, I had my son, so I had to get up. I had to take him to school. Um, and, and you know, and he has matured in this process as well in a very, um, in and in a way that I never really imagined he would, but he's become much more open and sensitive and much more able to talk about things so that's been a blessing for us but the grief processing was really um, understanding a lot more about our experience and then 
just doing everything I could. And the same thing I tried to do with my husband. I tried to find as many things as I could to try and help me, which is why I ended up, you know, finding Amber's YouTube videos and finding your podcast um, because I was searching to 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 help me through it. But it 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 is the kind of and I think grief following someone's passing when they've had addiction as part of the mix is is really hard because I think as the as a loved one you you do think about your role a lot um sure so I don't know if that helped yeah yeah well you referenced the likely audience that will be touched by this people who have experienced loss people who are worried about experience experiencing loss and I just think or you're a tremendous ambassador for the thoughtfulness and understanding that it takes to unwind the complexity that is addiction. This is one of those societal problems that if there was a simple answer, we would have found it by now and there isn't. And so I think the solution is as indirect and as not easy as we, we have to talk about it. We have to talk about the you know, the specifics and the experiences to provide comfort and learning for each other. And so I commend you for not only the way you've processed grief and you've found forgiveness, but the way you've expressed that here today on the Intoxicated Podcast. Bhavani, thank you very, very much for being our guest. We're so sorry for your loss, and but we are blessed and, and thankful that we have you in our life. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.